especially because I think we were discussing earlier, like a lot of athletes are very tense and very, not only sympathetic dominant, but they, they hold a lot of like, um, like muscle tone. Like they're always like ready to go. And so what I found is just from getting them to synchronize working in movements, breath with movement, this type of breathing rhythm, they've gotten so much more connected with their body and also been able to enter like flow state or visualization states that they can use in their performance. Because a, a lot of my visualization work for competing and stuff like that, it all started with working in movements, taking movements that were not scary or threatening, taking a squat, and then just literally trying to go for 10, 15, 20 minutes and just synchronize exhaling down, inhaling up, going as slow as I can. And through those that repetitive movement, you start the creativity, the mind, all these things start opening up. And so that's where I really started uh, exploring with meditation and visualization stuff is through the working in stuff that Paul taught me. That was holistic performance expert, Mike Salemi, speaking on utilizing working in breathing techniques to optimize an athlete's flow state, creativity, and reduce sympathetic dominance in their performance training. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 150 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and we made it. We are on the sesquicentennial episode We've, uh, we've, we've put in, we've put in the miles. It's, it's really cool to be at this point. Um, I don't know for some reason, episode 100 seemed like the big landmark, but 150 is cool too. Um, anyways, for the show today, uh, we have an awesome holistic human performance experience with coach and world champion kettlebell athlete, Mike Salemi. Uh, Mike was recommended to me by, I, I put out, um, kind of basically like a little, survey on instagram a while ago on who should i have on the show and mike was one of the names that was put back by um, the other users on instagram and i'll I'll admit i actually didn't know who mike was and then but i'm really happy whoever that was put his name out there because i am such a better coach now as a result of having spent a few hours with mike both uh, being able to work out with him we did this episode recorded it in person and also just hear him talk on the utilization of working in and breathing and being able to put athletes in a more flow state to get um, not only more out of their performance, but it's also just a good thing to do as a human being. Uh, if, we're, if we're thinking about how we uh, treat and engage our athletes, obviously we want to make their performance better. Uh, it's nice. Well, first, you know, if you're in the physical prep sector, it's like, how can I make you stronger and help you jump higher and help you be more functional relative to the needs of your sport? But then we zoom out a little more and it's okay. How can I enhance the innate machinery, psychological machinery that you have to enhance your creativity and flow in your sport? And then we zoom out even more and we can say, how can I just help you to learn to be a healthier and better functioning and happier human being, especially as I'm teaching you these training principles that you're going to use for your whole life. And that's where having this talk and workout with Mike was fantastic. So uh, long story short, I was able to 
not only get a workout, but or not only record a podcast in person, but get a workout beforehand with Mike. Anytime you work out with a world champion in something, it is a, I mean, it's, it's a potentially life-changing experience. A lot of these are life-changing experiences for me when I'm able to work out with some of these other guests on the show, just because it's, it's an awesome way. Um, talking with someone about training is one thing, but actually being able to experience a workout and engage in that is another. And so that was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, Mike's going to get into his background uh, as we get into the show, but he has had a tremendous ride, incredible mentorships, uh, and and multiple sports that he's gone through himself as an athlete. And Mike carries a view of performance that we can all learn from looking at things from all angles of the equation. Uh, On the show, he is going to talk about working out versus working in, uh, using breathing as a, a tool to stimulate the system in a way that helps us to be recovered and more focused he's going to talk about and and him having learned that from paul check who is the og of holistic performance and paul has been a huge impact on my own life mike is also going to get into some really cool ideas on phasic and tonic systems training and imbalances which actually fits in with some jay schrader stuff that i think is really cool and finally, he's going to chat a little bit on Aldoa stretching and how he utilizes that in his performance training system. This was a really cool episode. I will say I talk a lot about the workout we did on the show. <laughs> the workout briefly, head to the show notes on Just Fly Sports. I have some videos that Mike uh, shot or I shot with Mike uh, revolving around that process. It's also on recent, on recent on my Instagram. But basically, we were using a Hertz band and a Bulgarian bag in more of a, a, I guess you could call it like an energy return flowing manner where like the band, you could wrap it around various joints and and twist to the other direction, having some basic resisted rotational movement, but integrating breathing into all that. So it basically worked on it at a low to moderate intensity that put a high priority on mobility, rotation, and breathing. And it was an awesome workout and a lot of fun as well. And I learned a ton. My My whole next week, um, I had a different thought process and honestly, I, I have this new almost way and, and ideas of warming up athletes as well as using uh, restorative, uh, parasympathetic based means in their own training. And, uh, this was just a really cool show with Mike. So enjoy it. Uh, let's get onto it, man, Mike, that was, that was a heck of a workout you just took me through. And, uh, thank you for that, by the way, that was, that was exactly what my body needed today. That was a good time. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. How long, how long have you been working with, um, those, the bands for like in that manner? So the band, you know, the band work is actually something quite new, like really only in the last about two years. And the band training that I took you through was all developed by the former U S Olympic Greco Roman wrestling coach, Ivan Ivanov. And as I was sharing with you, like the bands are probably what I feel one of the biggest kept secrets in strength and conditioning, because really it's just one band or two bands. Like I take them with me in my backpack. I take them everywhere and but it's not so much the band that's important it's the creativity of the movements and the training application uh so really i never really got introduced to that form of training until i started visiting boise with coach ivan ivanov uh and really started working with him so just in the last like two years yeah and then the the bag stuff man i mean you're you know if you were i wouldn't want to challenge you to a thumb world <laughs> my thumb was so trashed after like five, i was trying to hide it i was trying to hide how bad my thumb was hurt um but you've been working with the bags the 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 um uh, Bulgarian bag or the or not the Bulgarian bag? I I just did a podcast with Max Ada, so I'm stuck on Bulgarian. But the the Suplice bag, yeah, Suplice Bulgarian yeah. bag. Okay, that, yeah. And what's funny is you mentioned about the thumbs, so that is the limiting factor. Not just the thumbs, but the entire forearms and the grip in general. Like that's usually where everyone. That's the limiting factor, especially when starting off. But what's funny is anytime I teach a cert or anything, the only people, and it happens, I almost ten times out of ten when I ask like midway through, I'm like. You know, how's everyone's grip doing? How's everyone's hand doing? Everyone's like, oh my God, they're, they're, they're fatigued, they're dying. The only person that usually has no problem with their grips, and it's almost 10 times out of 10, are manual therapists. Really? So like I was just teaching in, in Boise, and, or not in Boise, I'm sorry, in Austin, Texas at Paleo FX. At four workshops and two of the workshops, only two people were like, no, my grip's fine. And I pointed them out right in the center of the workshop. I was like, you wouldn't happen to be a manual therapist, would you? And they go, yes, in fact, I am. <laughs> so it's like the only people that are just using their thumbs all day and their hands all day seem to do okay with it. Yeah, thumb, thumbs of steel. Oh, it's like <laughs> ultimate specificity, right? Like, or they can probably like manage the tension too. Like you're not supposed to like, you know, push too hard. You'll blow your thumbs up or whatever. Like, uh, that's awesome, man. It's like, 
like um, I could see the research, the the adductor policists or well, I don't know, I'm probably saying the wrong one, but like test strength of manual therapists versus the average population. I'm sure it's quite a bit stronger. Well, even like Ivan's wrestlers, like when I was out there training, like his nine-year-old, like he told me, he goes, even if my nine-year-old, if they lock grips on you in the wrestling match or if they grab a hold of your wrist, he says, as soon as they tie up with you or grab you, he says, you're done. If they can get a hand on you, he says, you're fin- you'll be thrown, you'll be tossed. <laughs> and so it's like even their nine-year-olds, whatever, they've just been conditioned for three, four, five days a week on these tools that it's like they have just like a impenetrable grip. Yeah, it makes me think, I just did a podcast uh, with Ben Patrick talking about like the same thing, but for like the feet and the knees of like a basketball player and a jumper, like that being the critical link. And I think about, you know, my, I'm not as familiar with wrestling, but just working on that bag, I'm like, man, like, I feel like, you know, just the way my hand felt, I feel like that link would be, I mean, it could get nothing but way, way stronger after a period of time working on that thing. Yeah, totally. And then I think too, just a, you made me think of something about just the link between grip and shoulder stability. Like I've seen like a lot of people working with these tools improve shoulder stability and overhead movements and such just because they have more, they can irradiate that tension from the grip all the way through into the shoulder joint. So like I've seen transfer into multiple different areas, which has been really cool. Yeah, it's always it's always awesome. Like train one thing, and it's like, oh wait, this got stronger too. Those are the best, right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so before we get too far into the training too, because I really I really want to get into some. I mean, that band stuff was like legendary, man. Like I'm excited <laughs> to get into that. Uh, but your um, so your background, you were like a gymnast, powerlifter. Can you just kind of give us like the two minute version of your strength journey um, before we get into the training stuff? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was so fortunate. I think growing up, you know, thankfully my parents they knew that they wanted me to have uh, at least some base in in sports and movement quality and movement health from, I think, just a mental perspective, but also just understanding my body and awareness at a deeper level. And so from a young age, I think my brother, who I'm really tight and close with, he was a gymnast since he was like five years old. Yeah, like five, five and a half, competed for, I don't even know, like 15 years, like something like that. I got into it slightly later, I think when I was about seven or eight, because he's two-ish years older than me as well. Um, so I started in gymnastics until I was about, I think like nearly 14, uh, had some phenomenal coaches. Uh, my coach in gymnastics was a two-time Olympian, Krasmer Dunev of Bulgaria and just like a phenom. He was the first person ever to do, uh, six release moves in a row consecutively on the high bar. So oh, wow. he, yeah, he was a silver medalist in, I think it was Atlanta on the high bar, but I never went super far in gymnastics. I had a pinch nerve in my back and I don't think that like there's a specific athletic profile to be exceptional gymnastics. I was good, but I was by no means like a high, high, high level gymnast, but it did develop the base level of strength, awareness, body control, all the things that now like I appreciate so, so much more. Um, so after gymnastics, I transitioned due to that injury into competitive powerlifting because the person who rehabilitated me was a competitive powerlifter, a chiropractor. And so he, saw that I just really loved strength and conditioning. Like we would always talk about like our, my workouts in gymnastics and we just really, really hit it off. His name is Mike Ludovico and he brought me into a basement powerlifting club. And from there, like it was in its, in its own recept- respect, it was like a Mecca in the Bay area for powerlifting. Like you needed a key to get in. There was like 16 to 18 members. Everyone was super serious and competitive um, so I went there and then towards the end of that journey, I started, um, training at Westside Barbell in Ohio with Louis Simmons. So I spent about a month, nice. a, a month in Ohio, uh, to really study him, understand his methods more deeply. When I got back, um, I started strength and conditioning and was a coach at Santa. No, at that time, I'm sorry. At that time I was strength and conditioning coach, um, for, uh, college of San Mateo assistant men's baseball, Notre Dame, women's basketball, volleyball. So I was a strength and conditioning coach and was looking for more things that I could do with my athletes. And that led me to Olympic weightlifting because I was like, if I really want to incorporate some of the Olympic movements, I really want to be proficient And what better way than to dive in and compete and have a great coach like Jim Schmitz. So, uh, did Olympic weightlifting. And while I was taking certifications, still hunting, still trying to find things that I could do with my athletes, especially on the courts. That's when I started coming across the kettlebell. And so fast forward, you know, that was 14, 15, maybe 15 years ago that I started kettlebell training, started doing more certs and whatnot and found kettlebell sport. Uh, so I've been competing in kettlebell sport at a high level for almost 10 years now. So that's like the, the accelerated version of the background, but it's really been a base of four sports, 
but really, you know, as a gymnast, that was the foundation. And now training so much with wrestlers and working with fighters with the, with the soupless tools, I see it coming full circle. Like I can appreciate so much more the importance of movement quality um, now more than ever, to be honest. Yeah, I, I love that you started as a gymnast. One of the things I always think about, well, having kids myself too, James Smith or the Thinker Smith in the sports performance world talks about like, if you know, kids need to do basically if they can do gymnastics, track, and swimming, like those are like three awesome base sports that teach you like th- your movement literacy is just so big and it gives you, empowers you to do whatever the next thing is. So, and I know a lot of like, especially it seems like female weightlifters right now are like, gymnast gymnastic backgrounds and then go and do that and uh so what um you know going into powerlifting and coming off of powerlifting into kettlebells and everything you're doing now and just i again i was just so blown away with the movement quality let's like i i almost reference things compared to how i feel just playing a game of basketball and where my body is just natural mode you know just playing and breathing as normal and versus like i think a more restricted like if i'm doing a squat and holding my breath or something like that i it just i felt so good and so what um like, what have you learned kind of coming off of powerlifting in terms of how the human body should function and how we should train it and, and from a general human function perspective? Yeah, I found that, at least in my own experience as an athlete, as a coach, like, I think, you know, the powerlifts are great, especially if you're trying to focus on absolute strength, especially if you're trying to be a powerlifter. But when it comes to just sports, tennis, baseball, hockey, like, you're very rarely, if ever, going to move in one plane. And a lot of times, like, I think... Uh, at least in my experience, a lot of coaches think about not only the the movements could potentially be selected better, more applicable for sports, the planes of movement, movement patterns, but also understanding like there's an optimal level of strength that you need for a particular sport. So a lifter doesn't necessarily, like a gymnast doesn't necessarily, does not need to bench press 300 pounds. They need to develop relative strength, body control, movement through every plane. And what I found was is not, I mean, I was competing in powerlifting. So as my sport, I thought it was fantastic. I needed to train as much as I was training and I developed great levels of base strength. But when I first started making the transition, thankfully I had the gymnastics background that helped me, but it was not easy in the beginning to learn a lot of these movements that we did today because they take coordination. They take mastering your body through changing levels and hip mobility, shoulder mobility, you're changing directions. Um, but what I found is, is by training in those tools and developing skills in those tools, I've had so much more athleticism in other areas of my life so that I could hop into, you know, if I hopped onto the jujitsu mats, by no, I would get owned because there's a level of technical expertise, but I can move. I can shift from position to position. My hips are open. As long as someone teaches me the techniques, which takes time, the base is there uh, of movement quality. And so it's almost like, like I always say, like there's... When it comes to sports especially, like get the body to move as a body should move. Get the shoulder to move like a shoulder should move. The hip should move like a hip should move. Uh, The spine to move like a spine should move. And then you'll be able to do whatever it is you want. But if we train in just these isolated planes, like the only time that, you know, even with the bench press, like even if I do do a bench press, like I'll do it on a burst-resistant Swiss ball or something like that where my shoulders can move through the full range. I'll be stabilizing almost like in a bridge position. So there's that component. Or if maybe I was doing a floor press, maybe there's an application to like jujitsu when you're on the mat, your elbows are on the floor and you have to push an opponent away. But when it comes to these sports specific qualities, like you need to have freedom of movement. That is such an integration with the breath. So what I found is these tools have been just amazing for movement quality, multi-planar movements, the ability to, like we learned, like we went over today, and maybe we didn't even discuss it, but like the ability to accelerate and more importantly, decelerate, in my opinion, is probably one of the biggest missing athletes and uh, aspects in athletic performance. Like when I'm working with athletes, it is super important that they've got the motor, the gas, but I'm really concerned is what is their ability to de- I'm sorry, to decelerate their body under control because uncontrolled deceleration is where I see most all the injuries happen, especially in the planes that we don't train. So when we look at the Bulgarian bag, it's phenomenal for frontal plane movement and rotational movement. You can train front to back, but most all sports are rotation. Whether you're a javelin thrower, like we were discussing, a baseball player, a hockey player, you're a football player, you're throwing a pitch, uh, whatever it is, rotation is probably one of the most important patterns of movement for day-to-day living and in sport, and we never train it. So I found just so much application training 
rotation, accelerating, decelerating, mastering your movements just through these tools. Yeah, I was going to say, as you were, as soon as you said decelerating, I was thinking about our work with the Bulgarian bag there and the fact that that whole process that we went through, and I should probably get into like the, spe- the specs before I'm like, yeah, that awesome workout we did, bro. <laughs> yeah, like, what did we do? That, exactly. was, that was killer. Yeah, wait, what is that? Was yeah. that awesome workout? But like everything was in, was flowing. Like, like there was always like, it was always like, um, like you talk about like the shoulders and hips and, and feet as a series of spiraling figure eights and running and things like that. Like it's always spiraling. Energy is always returning into the system. And so everything we did there was pretty much the same thing. It was always returning the system versus even like some regular prehab, like just if I'm going to work my rotator cuff with a rotator cuff band and kind of just working in one, you know, motion back and forth, that's not the same as something that's actually almost spinning, if you will. Like, and, and you have to continually, it's like you are moving your body around it versus like mm-hmm. just a muscle manually controlling something and that. So it's cool to get that sense, but yeah, let's jump into it. Like, so the big part of what we just did was the, the, well, I know working in was a big part of that and the breathing. So maybe we can um, we can kick it off with that because I think that's something that uh, I know in the circles that I talk to, it's not discussed a lot, like breathing patterns, especially the breathing we were doing. So could you kind of break that down a little bit and how you're uh, rocking with that? Yeah, I'm so stoked you mentioned that because that's also another area. You know, we talked about rotation as a big missing element in most strength and conditioning programs. Like we touched on that. The other thing that's incredibly missing, at least in my observation, is this aspect of working in. And so I'll kind of break down what working in is, where I learned it, and how I see it fitting into athletic performance and really holistic high performance mm-hmm. because that's that's my mission is yeah. to spread holistic high performance to as many coaches, as many schools, as many teams, as many athletes as possible. And you know, through injuries, I think pretty much transitioning out of every sport from gymnastics to powerlifting to Olympic weightlifting to kettlebell sport, every single transition came via typically an injury. So I think injuries come along with high, you know, anytime you're trying to reach a high level goal, winning a world championship or something significant, the risk of injury goes higher and higher, right? The volume of training goes up, the imbalances go up, the repetitive strains go up. So, uh, but the interesting thing was, is through every injury, what I found is it opened the door to a whole new world of understanding myself better, understanding what I was missing in my own training. And in kettlebell sports specifically, I had an orthopedic injury to my left forearm where on every single competition where in kettlebell sport, we lift two kettlebells. I compete with double 32 kilos, so 72-ish pounds in each hand, and we have to clean and jerk the weight for 10 minutes unbroken without setting it down. No pause. The only rest period is at chest level or at overhead level. So it's a brutal, brutal movement and a brutal sport. And on every single like hard effort in the gym or in competition, my left forearm would swell, pull with blood, and then I would lose all feeling in the hand. And I went through two and a half years of nine different practitioners. No one could really figure it out. And it wasn't until I started working with one of my mentors and now close friends, Paul Check, who specializes in, I mean, Paul Check, for, for, if anyone's not familiar with Paul, uh, he's a holistic health practitioner, been practicing for 30 years, and he pretty much specializes in medical failures. And so from just cases that either docs don't want to take or orthopedic injuries that sports teams can't figure out, they'll bring him in to figure, you know, what's the solution. And so I ended up working with him over two and a half years. And he put such an emphasis, not only on balancing the body structurally, but balancing the body energetically. And so if we look at working out movements, which most everyone's familiar with, so like training in the gym, a hard workout, uh, a really tough session in the pool, uh, a hard tennis match. Those are energy expenditure activities. Those are symp- typically sympathetic dominant activities, things that send you into a flight or fight state, right? So that's typically where I see, and I was myself for so much of my time, I was operating continuously always in this stressful state. And I wasn't incorporating exercises, modalities that actually brought energy, vitality, resources back into the system. So simply stated, a working out exercise is an energy expenditure activity. A working in exercise is an energy cultivating activity, an activity that brings in more resources than it costs the body to output. So there's four criteria that I learned from Paul in terms of how do you know if you're working in or working out. And a working in exercise could be any movement. You could do a squat. You could, And a lot of times when I'm working with athletes, they're like, oh, they might, I don't know if they haven't told me this because I, I think... There's a difference when if you, if you teach someone something and you don't live it, then, you know, I think people can pick up on that. 
but I usually haven't met very much resistance at all when I'm bringing this stuff into athletic teams. It might look a little funny in the beginning if people aren't familiar with meditation or whatnot, but I think today people know how important it is just to get that, that edge. And so you can pick a very familiar movement. So you can pick a deadlift type movement, but do it with a dowel rod. You can take a body weight squat. You could do a movement that looks like a cable push and rotate. You can take any movement you want done body weight. And essentially you take that movement and what you do is you, the four criteria, if any one or combination of these things happen, you know, you're working out. So number one is if you're sweating, you know, you're in a, in a sympathetic dominance that you're more working out. If your digestion goes, um, doesn't improve. So like if you can't do the working in exercise on a full, full stomach, like a Thanksgiving meal, then, you know, it's not activating the parasympathetic nervous system. The third is the tongue should stay moist. Uh, If the tongue dries out, you know, you're working out. And then the fourth slash fifth is the heart rate should not elevate and the respiratory rate should not elevate. So if you can keep the heart rate at a steady level, the respiratory rate at a steady level, not sweat, have an exercise that improves the digestion and keep the tongue moist, then those four to five criteria let you know you're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system and you're really bringing energy and resources into the system. And I'll use that as its own dedicated practice for let's say 20 minutes, kind of like a Tai Chi practice where I'll go barefoot outside as you can see, like there's a stone circle out there in my yard, like stacking heavy stones grass. So I'll go barefoot and maybe I'll do 20 minutes of a working in exercise where the only goal and objective is not technical movement. That's, that's honestly one big thing that's interesting as athletes. We all want to do things perfectly, like perfect spinal alignment, perfect, all these things. Uh, but working in movements are less technical. You're just trying to feel the movement, allow your body to go into these natural positions, allow the breath to guide the movement. And on every movement, there's a specific breathing rhythm that corresponds to the movement. So for example, on any movement that involves flexion, internal rotation, and adduction, so any movement that brings the body into the fetal position, when the rib cage closes down, that's naturally matched with exhalation. So if I'm doing the lowering phase on a breathing squat, I'm exhaling very slowly on the way down, four to six seconds or as long as I can. And then as I extend the hips, extend the spine, externally rotate, supinate the hand and abduct or essentially come out of the fetal position, then I'm naturally, when I'm, when the rib cage is opening, I'm inhaling. So I'm exciting the extensors of the body just by the breathing rhythm. So you could use, as long as you incorporate breath with movement in that way and you adhere to those four to five criteria, you can do any movement. It can be a working in exercise. 20 minutes is a great therapeutic dose, but honestly, even one minute, two minute, three minute can be phenomenal. And I'll also superset it with working out exercises. So I might do a working out exercise and I might also challenge my athletes. Let's just say, um, I'm just trying to think what was my most recent workout. I was doing a kettlebell, kind of like a juggling type movement. I was doing a clean, uh, and juggling it, catching the kettlebell on with one, one arm at shoulder level. So I was alternating like this kind of hopping clean movement, which got my heart rate up. And then during the rest period, I was doing a a standing movement called a cross crawl. And my objective, I had, I didn't set the timer how long I was going to work in. My objective was how quickly can I reduce my respiratory rate and my heart rate through the working in movement? As soon as I feel like it's calmed down to a decent level or a normal level, that's my cue to go back in. But if I stay super high heart rate, then I can't go back in. So I would do anywhere from three to five rounds, two exercises, one working out movement, one working in, and really almost like at a, in, a compet- in a competitive way, how quickly, how efficiently, how quickly can I synchronize breath with movement and calm my body down? Yeah, I like um, I like what you mentioned about like pairing extension and inhalation. Like it's, I mean, I know like working in is more of the parasympathetic, but like I know I, I was just having this conversation because I'm pretty well versed in like postural restoration institute and like talking about like, getting the rib cage down and and, and basically getting um, uh, I guess for lack of a better description, like you know the the typical squatting chest back butt out, like trying to get rid of that and and but. I was talking with a guy, Charlie Reed, I met at um, a Pat Davidson seminar talking about how really performance is athlete, the best sprinters. It's, it's always exhalation and it's, um, extension or sorry, inhalation, extension, like the, the, the chest is expanded and that 
um, I, I'm glad you just mentioned the um, inhalation kind of like stimulating that that extensor system. And it, it's interesting because like usually you would do a deadlift or a squat and you would exhale on the way up. Like that's like what we're kind of taught to do. Um, so how would you pair like um, how would you like if someone's going to go heavy in the weight room like, you know, or someone's like going to really like get after it or something like that. Are you still doing that or are you do, OK? You're going back to normal, like kind of just for pressurizing the system or things like that. Yeah. So there's a switch that needs to happen. And so usually the rule of thumb, you can do it. You can think of it in a few different ways. If it's a load that's typically and there's some room for, for play here. But if it's a load that's typically above 60 percent of a one rep max, there's a switch that needs to happen. Or if it's a movement and exercise, a training activity if you can do it at a conversational intensity, then that lets you know you can use more of that working in breath. But as soon as, because respiration is so, so, so high on the totem pole for control systems of the body and just survival in general, it is the primary system. And so respiration always reigns supreme, but as soon as stability of the spine becomes more important than respiration, then we have to switch. And so in that situation, if it was a load that I'm just, let's just say above a 60% one rep max on the squat, on the deadlift, on a press, whatever it is, then I, what I would do is I would take an inhalation breath, then stabilize, pressurize the trunk. And depending on the speed of movement, the repetitions and the load, that's going to vary in terms of, am I going to hold my breath the whole movement? Am I going to pressurize exhale? Can I get two, two or three reps on one breath? But it's like, I think the best analogy for breathing is it's like, it's a, like a dial. And I think in the beginning, you know, it's helpful to train athletes in terms of, okay, let's do strict working in, let's do strict working out. But ultimately, once you learn the, the idea and the mechanics and you have enough practice, it's something that should not necessarily, it should happen automatically. If we're picking up a heavy box from the ground or whatever, like, automatically just to create more stiffness in the system so we can transfer the force from the legs through the arms and stand up we should be using some type of bracing type technique but if it's a light load like if you're picking up your socks and here here's the thing if you're picking up your socks and you're bracing there's a problem in your inner unit (laughs) function so it's like when you're picking up your socks you're picking up something light like you should have the breathing rhythm that corresponds to the threat or lack thereof threat So another way you could think of it is like if you really respect the load, if you need to respect the load, if it's a heavy, heavy weight, then you have to act in accordance. But if it's a working in movement, breath with movement, all the things we're talking about, then utilizing a breath sequence that works with that, I've really, really found, especially because I think we were discussing earlier, like a lot of athletes are very tense and very not only sympathetic dominant, but they they hold a lot of like, um, like muscle tone, like they're always like ready to go. And so what I found is just from getting them to synchronize working in movements, breath with movement, this type of breathing rhythm, they've gotten so much more connected with their body and also been able to enter like flow state or visualization states that they can use in their performance. That's awesome. Because a, a lot of my visualization work for competing and stuff like that, it all started with working in movements, taking movements that were not scary or threatening, taking a squat. And then just literally trying to go for 10, 15, 20 minutes and just synchronize exhaling down, inhaling up, going as slow as I can. And through those that repetitive movement, you start the creativity, the mind, all these things start opening up. And so that's where I really started uh, exploring with meditation and visualization stuff is through the working in stuff that Paul taught me. Yeah, it's like a gateway, man. And I love Dude. Yeah, I, I love it. I love like, that word. Like, yeah, it's because uh, I mean, one of the things I always talk about, especially with like my my colleagues who like work with pros or like you know, a, I mean, anyone who works with high level athletes, especially once you have a basic base of strength and you're strong enough to play the game, the grinders in the weight room are not the best athletes. It's almost like they're always in that fight or flight. They can't get out of it. Like, and it, they almost feel like that's what they need to do to get to the next level. But it's like what you're saying is what the best athletes can do. They can shut it off. Like, they can get in that state where they're creative and flow and visualize. Like. You know, I mean, you look at like what those like it makes me think of like Steph Curry and warmups, like just throwing up some crazy ass three pointer and making it. You know, it's like this just pure creativity. It's not like you can't be in that. If you can't turn stuff off, you're not going to be able to do those types of things those elite athletes can do. And I, I'm glad I mentioned the 60. percent I'm like, okay, like I'm like it, you almost think like too. It's like your proportion in the weight room, how much you train above it and how much you train below it, and that mm-hmm. being like a big factor as well. Like kind of keeping that in mind on how much of your sets are in this state where we can do a natural more breathing cycle and, and versus 
the the survival cycle, if you will, I guess you could say. Yeah, especially for for collegiate athletes and, and pro athletes who are being, you know, just to be honest, being drug tested. Like if you're a natural athlete, it's like you need to take as many, you need to be as smart as possible with as many healing modalities you can mm-hmm. and try to be as efficient as possible with less. So like things like hopping in a float tank, working in exercises, those are all your natural recovery modalities. And what I found, and I've always been so like, just like, pleasantly surprised that my athletic performance has been still at 32 going up 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 by relatively speaking doing less like when i'm in a dedicated training cycle and i'm not not, we're not talking like teaching and stuff like Mm -hmm. that when i'm have a lot of workshops or whatnot but like when i'm actually in a competitive training cycle like i'm training much less relatively speaking than i ever did and the results are getting more and more because it's like everything is very, very focused. Every exercise, everything has a specific purpose, not only from the physical side, but also how I'm, how we're hopefully restoring our bodies energetically. Like, it's so cool. Like, you can, you can truly, truly achieve more by doing left if you incorporate some of these things that we're sharing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm kind of hung up on like that gateway and flow. And cre- I mean, that could be like a whole podcast, man. We'll have to come back in like a year and we'll have to, we'll have to jam on that one. Um, but it's like, cause it's like everyone can think too of those two or three athletes who are just stuck in sympathetic and how that working in would just be a revol- you know, revolutionize their process. Um, so what we just did in, in our little workout, I mean, we were doing like pretty good work with, well, I mean, I was getting tired a little bit, <laughs> but you were fine. But like, I mean, th- would that be classified as working in then since we were still sticking with the breathing patterns, like we were doing the band work and the different like low poles and, and different twists and things like that and manipulations. Um, I mean, is that, that was at a work in intensity, I guess, it, but it's like a hybrid of things. Like, could you explain a little bit about like that dynamics of how you've taken the breathing and then mixed it in with your process with like the Bulgarian bag and the band and how, I love how that's so minimalist, by the way. I love that you could just throw it in the back of your car and it's just good to go you know too yeah and i'll incorporate the same and i'll go into it but i'll incorporate the same things with all the unconventional tools in the gym that i have whether it's kettlebells like i'll do a lot of working in and exercise with that kettlebells like man we'll have to spend a lot of time like we could go into some great great stuff with kettlebells but whether the band stuff i would say today it was it was essentially on the threshold because it's new movement mm-hmm. for you, right? So like you're adapting to a new stimulus, like you were sweating, heart rate was going up and stuff like that, you were working. So it's right there, but we kept the breathing uh, light. So it was a working, so it was we were using the lightest bands mm-hmm. that I have, mm-hmm. but the movements were quite demanding, right? But the whole, the whole idea was uh, exhale during flexion and all the cues that we went mm-hmm. over, inhaling during, during extension. And so what I took you through or what I took Joel through was like, we did probably one, two, three, maybe like, seven or so movements seven Mm -hmm. to eight movements we did a lot of movement they're all total body movements we did shoulder exercises that resemble indian clubs so training the Mm -hmm. shoulder in its full range of motion movements that incorporate not only movements that you know i don't know if you think back to the workout you remember how like in certain positions you were losing your balance yeah so what's interesting about the band work which is different than most any other tool that i've used is how do you deal and manage with horizontal forces? Mm-hmm. And so I'll do my best to explain it on the air. But if if uh, if you when you post like a video or something, yeah. some of the movements people will understand a little bit more. Yeah, I'll go in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So like when we were doing some of these movements, these combination movements, these movements where you have to combine a squat pattern with a um, with a twist pattern, with mm-hmm. uh, you're combining a lunge pattern. I'm thinking you're combining a press pattern, a pull pattern. When you're doing all these movements fluidically. Like in the bottom position of one of the movements that we did, essentially we had a band that was pulling horizontally and we were in the bottom of a lunge pattern. And so the band wanted to pull us off of our base. And so as a coach, what I found is the tremendous benefit of that is, you know, as a, as, as the coach, I'm definitely giving cues. We broke down it and we broke down the full movement into three levels of progressions. So you can break it down into levels of progressions. You can also break it down into using lighter band tensions. You can also simplify it more by stepping closer to the anchor point. Uh, so you have three and you could slow down the movement. You have three to four primary ways in which you can regress it for your athletes. But once you teach them the progressions, what I love and what has been so empowering having studied with Ivan. So Ivan, I, don't, I think I mentioned that he was the former U.S. Olympic coach for Greco-Roman mm-hmm. wrestling. Anytime I can get around him, I spend as much time as possible because he is a master of coaching. Like how to be a very successful coach, especially in a group environment. 
And the tools and the training system works perfectly with that to where I could have a row, a line of athletes with just a band to an anchor point. And again, it's not the band that's special. It's the training application and the education behind it. But once I teach them the progressions, how to modify, how to work through it, I know if every athlete is working, one, because there's going to be tension in the band. If the band is slack, there's going to be no feedback, and I know the athlete's Mm -hmm. not working. The other thing I know is the band and the movements allow the athletes to self-teach themselves because if you lose your balance, then you know you need to self-adjust. So I have to do less as a coach, and essentially the student becomes his own best teacher. And that is so, so, so empowering as a coach to where, yes, I'm helping out if I see a gross movement error, but for the most part, they know if they're doing it right, and they make those fine-tuned adjustments that are directly going to relate to their their performance on the court or on the field. Um, so I think I kind of went like a little bit. That was one thing that I went a little astray there to answer your question, but we use breathe, uh, working in breathing modalities kept it breath with movement. So we got a lot of pumping in the system. We didn't stress it. We kept the, the reps not too much. Um, but it was more just to enjoy the movements, change, change levels, multi-planar, multi-planar, multi-pattern movements, movements that synchronize one to the other and truly learning to master our body through these positions that we rarely ever train and condition in. Yeah. Like it's just basically the magic of it is combining flowing movements that are cycling energy with the breathing, like cycling, breathing. it's like those two put together, I think. And it's like, there's infinite creativity too, but obviously there's this level of simplicity you start with, with the athletes, but I mean, I got, I got it pretty well. I felt like I was kind of learning to dance a little bit, but it was easy because I did get it. It was way better than my salsa classes. <laughs> way, well, by way by the end, you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. No, by the good. end, by your last set, you were like, you hit every position. You had your balance point. Like, and that's what's cool too in a relatively short amount of time. Like that was a total body movement, total body workout, multi-planes, multi-patterns, and you learned it in a matter of five minutes. Yeah. So it's like, as a coach, that's awesome. When you got 20, 30 athletes or 15 athletes, mm-hmm. And like, that's, what's been so refreshing for me as a coach is to, to utilize these tools and these training systems that truly make coaching a lot easier. Yeah. And so you were talking a little bit, so obviously with the working in and breathing, um, how, so you would do that. Like if I'm just doing like a typical work, let's just say I'm doing a typical, like maybe like a workout you'd see at a university, like, you know, clean squat bench or something like that. Would you do a working in between every like set between every ser- like exercise after the workout is over before, like what are some kind of integration? Like if people are just trying to dip their toes in this stuff, they're like, okay, like maybe I'll try this on the cool down. What would be like a recommendation to say, Hey, how do I get my feet wet with just one using this stuff? And maybe us, maybe with a group of athletes too, that has never heard of it. And it's like, okay, what, why am I doing this? Or what, you know, like between my sets, like I want to, um, and then, yeah, maybe what are some basic principles for just starting off with it and how you would put it in like a mainstream workout? Sure. So where I would suggest starting is, so we, we discussed those four or five criteria. So those are the things that, that would let you know, no matter what movement you choose, like if you're working out or working in. So definitely adhering to those. But then what I would get, it's only like 20 bucks, but Paul Check's book, How mm-hmm. to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And so in that book, he breaks the bodies up into six zones. And I think it's, I forget what the title of the chapter is, but it's probably like energy cultivation or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Something like that. But essentially, he gives like anywhere from I think like three to six exercises for every zone of the body. So zone one would be the the around the area of the pelvis. Zone two around the area of the belly. Then around the sternum, around the heart, around the throat, and then around the head and slightly above the head. And so six zones of the bodies and exercises that stimulate those zones. Now. He gives you actually in that book, you can choose what zone you want to work on based off of just preference Mm -hmm. if you like a movement, but also in the beginning of the book, he's got a a lifestyle questionnaire, a physiological load questionnaire. And so I use that as one of the questionnaires when I work with all clients to understand what's their level of stress like, sleep like, Mm -hmm. nutritional stress, all that stuff. And then based off of when you fill out that assessment, it will guide you into a suggested zone that you should work on to bring more oxygen, more energy, and more vitality to that area. So just starting with that book is a great starting point. And I would not, well, at least how I use it, I don't use working in before a workout. Um, I would say you could use it in the middle of the workout, um, but I would say it would require a little bit more skill to guide that Mm -hmm. because like, 
it would be hugely beneficial. But what I found just in my own personal experience, there's movements that tend to work really well with working in and movements that maybe not so much. So like one rep absolute strength activities where you're just like, like you're getting yourself fired up and like, you know, someone's giving you a smelling salt and like you're <laughs> sniffing it, like heavy metals in the background. It's going to be pretty hard to come out of that. Yeah, quick turn the music down. Yeah, quick turn <laughs> the music good. down. Yeah. Let me, you know, while, while plates are dropping behind you. Yeah. So you want to consider the environment that you're in. I feel like more, uh, they tend to work better with more endurance and strength endurance mm-hmm. type movements. So whether you're doing kettlebell work for swings, 10, 15 swings, mm-hmm. and on the rest period, you want to choose a preferred working in movement, mm-hmm. you can combine those two. Or let's say you choose a circuit. Circuit training is good. So if you're doing three to four exercises in a circuit, let's say you're doing a squat pattern, a lunge pattern, a press pattern, a pull pattern. And let's say you do those. And then your rest period is anywhere from one to two minutes or until your heart rate calms down. You can choose any of the movements and how to eat, move, and be healthy. And even just a squat can be a a work-in movement. Um, Outside of working during during the middle of a workout, Just doing it after a workout or on an off day, especially on an off day or in the evening can be great. Uh, Anything that you do, even if it's one to five minutes is going to be great. But if the real, in my opinion, like the real, real therapeutic benefits comes from like 20 minutes of continuous work. And so what I would suggest is, and that might have to be on an off day or on an evening, but a lot of times like while, let's say while I'm cooking dinner. So while the food's in the oven or, or uh, not on the stovetop, but while it's in the oven, I'll use that time to either do working in movements uh, outside or if I'm doing a sauna session while the sauna's warming up, I'll do it. But a few tips in terms of how to get a lot more out of it. So what I would do is if you have the choice and the, the ability to do it based off of your setting and surroundings, definitely would highly, highly recommend going barefoot. Okay, because using a synthetic shoe is not going to really connect you and ground you to the earth and dissipate the energy. So if you can go on a natural surface like grass and dirt are the are the best. Uh, next best would be like stone or even wood can be very good. But if you have to do it on a synthetic surface like carpet or something, it's okay. Like you still get the pumping and the oxygenation. But the better, better thing is to ground um, and go outside. So natural surface, barefoot connection to the earth. Um, also not wearing super restrictive clothing. If you have natural fiber clothing, that's better. Like, I mean, anything's going to be better than nothing, but if you're wearing like under armor tights and stuff, those are things that kind of constrict the, the energetic flow of our bodies. So if you can use cotton clothing, those, it might sound strange to maybe some people who are listening, but having practices quite a bit, like it really does make a difference when you're using natural fiber clothing, you do a working in exercise outside. And the best thing I could say is you have nothing to lose, but to try it. Mm -hmm. You literally 10, 20 minutes, give it a shot. And it might take you a few sessions to really feel it. But in a regular practice, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really cool what can happen if you incorporate it. Yeah, I, it, it makes me think a little bit of like, uh, I know in track and field, it's common to like after like a, a tough workout to do like a, a parasympathetic, I'm doing finger quotes, like a parasympathetic, <laughs> second, like a lot of like low intensity stuff to kind of calm the body down. But it's like, it, I've never heard in, in those texts, like talking about the breathing, like you were just talking about. So if nothing else, like if you're doing that to calm down, like just follow the breathing, follow, like a squat pattern, you're uh, exhaling on the way down and inhaling on the way up or anything. Is there anything like if you're doing a push up, like, or anything like, how would you breathe if you were doing a push up or in that type of setting? So, well, push up, you could certainly, I'll share what the breathing would be on a push up, but push up, unless you'd like have the amazing, like an amazing strength endurance, like you could do 300 push ups, yeah. you'd probably, you'd probably go working out pretty, you'd probably go sympathetic oh, yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. fast. I got you. Uh, so as soon as you start really struggling, <laughs> so what I would choose probably better would be like, uh, body weight, uh, so no resistance, right? Okay. Um, so let's say if I was doing body weight, and if someone can imagine, let's say, a single arm, let's say a staggered stance, so like kind of like in a moderate lunge stance, where imagine like you had a cable in one hand mm-hmm. and you were doing a push and a rotate, a push and a rotate. So a standing push pattern. So as you're pushing, if I, if I continued pushing, 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 if I continued that movement, I would almost be entering the fetal position, mm. right? So during pushing, that would be exhalation. As I pull, 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 as the rib cage opens, as I begin extending, 
I would be inhaling. Oh, gotcha. So it would be exhaling on the push, inhaling on the pull. Exhaling on the push, inhaling on the pull. Mike, you were talking a little bit too about, I wanted to get to this as well, but like in, in going with the breathing and and the, how important that is and the working in versus working out. I know you'd mentioned on another podcast, like you had had an imbalance in like your tonic versus your phasic system. And I'm assuming that, well, first, can you explain a little bit about what that is? And then two, expl- it, would that be a result of like an imbalance in these these breathing, like just always being on overdrive basically, or just get into that a little bit? Could certainly be. Yeah. So to- the tonic system of the body is, you could think of it like the postural system, right? So there's po- tonic muscles or postural muscles. Typically, they're more endurance-based. They're typically more type one muscle fibers, so slow t- slow twitch. Um, and so those are the muscles that are responsible for holding us upright for our postural component. Mm-hmm. You could think of it like the analogy, like those are the nuts and the bolts on the car, right? So those are the stabilizers gotcha. of the system. The phasic system is the mover system. So the phasic system is like our prime movers. The phasic system is like the motor of the car. What I found through my personal experience, like I have a very strong motor. So coming from powerlifting, like my athletic profile is much more as a fast switch athlete, mm-hmm. Olympic weightlifting, mm-hmm. gymnastics, explosive movements. Like, but you put me in a sport. Well, in kettlebell sport, it's unique because you have to be very strong, but it's more, it's a 10 minute unbroken set. So it's more along the lines of endurance. 10 minutes, you're, mm-hmm. you're in the endurance, you're in that zone. So it's kind of a unique sport. But what I found was the motor of my car is so much more developed and was so much more developed than the phasic system or the postural, the stabilizer systems, that what was happening was in competition, I would be clean and jerking. And once I would get somewhere around, you know, three-ish minutes, all of a sudden I'd be getting really, really shaky. And every every successive rep after that essentially was getting sloppier and sloppier. The kettlebell was flying out and it was kind of roping back in and I was using the smaller muscles of my forearms to do the work of my legs. And so I had such an imbalance between my postural muscles or my stabilizer muscles in comparison to the motor system or the phasic system that as soon as my stabilizers were gassed out, I was asking my prime movers, the major muscles of the body to propel the weight, to do the job of moving the weight and stabilizing my structure, which they're not designed to do. Because phasic muscles or mover type muscles, those are more fast twitch dominant, right? So what I had to do with Paul, and he's the one who identified it, was do a lot, a lot, a lot of postural reconditioning. So exercises, so longer durations. It's not a fun type of training. (laughs) It's like the one that everyone hates, but that's the corrective exercise in setting that base. Like for the first two months, like we barely lifted a kettlebell, really, really set up the ability for me to stay in the groove because when, when, during, during longer sets, because, you know, one of the things that I, I always love watching the Olympics, I'm sure everyone who's listening does as well, but it's like, when you look at an elite athlete, it's like, whether it's an Olympic weightlifting or in any sport, it's like the athlete that can make rep one look like rep a hundred or the athlete that can make five kilos look like 200 kilos that, or vice versa, I'm sorry, 200 kilos look like five kilos who can use the same technique, the same or similar speed, have the movement almost look identical. That is the master. But if you're breaking down at the end of your set, it's like you've lost it. Like that's, so I was breaking down. And so really conditioning that postural system was huge for me to balance out so that I could go longer durations. Um, and when you're talking about the postural, like postural conditioning exercises, because you're not really like you could choose a quote unquote postural exercise, but if you're only doing it for 10 seconds, you're really not stimulating that side of the system. If I recall correctly, I think the threshold is three ish minutes to really dip into that side. Um, somewhere's around there. It's not quite two minutes. Maybe, maybe it's a hundred seconds, something like that, but it's well over somewhere's two minutes plus. So two minutes of a continuous movement or whatever the exercise is. So let's just pick a simple exercise to recondition head and neck posture, like static wall lean. So a static wall lean, what you would do is you would stand back facing a wall. So you'd be looking away from a wall, standing back facing a wall. You'd be standing somewhere's maybe six inches away from the wall and you'd be leaning back. So the only contact point between you and the wall would be the back of your head. So essentially, you'd be leaning back slightly, trying to lengthen, lengthen your spine as much as possible, tucking the chin in. 
And in that exercise, you would only be, you would adjust the foot positioning to where you would only go as far away from the wall with your feet to where you were putting about a 40% effort with your head against the wall. So essentially what you're doing is your body stiff as a board, the back of your head is against the wall, and all you're doing is breathing and putting some light tension from the back and the wall. And essentially you're you're not only lengthening the back of the head and neck, but you're truly strengthening all the deep cervical flexors in that position. And so when you do that, in the beginning, maybe you do 10 second sets, but ultimately you want to work to about two to three minutes plus because you could do that exercise for just five seconds and you might feel an activation. Maybe your, your head and neck position is a little bit better, but the nervous system and, and the body, those tonic muscles will not record that movement because it didn't happen long enough. You didn't condition the slow twitch muscle fibers. So choosing a, a great postural exercise is good, but you want to make sure you're, you're, really getting the stimulus that you want and that truly takes a longer time under tension you know i i, I had to write down that um that three minutes and i should circle it like there's uh I, I talk about this on a lot of my other podcasts i think someone actually made a comment that they were going to make a drinking game any every time i mentioned extreme isometrics but like it's basically a movement where you do like like hold a isometric lunge isometric push-up hang from a bar and the guy who really proliferated the system was like three minutes is the minimum for it to make an impact mm. it's like so worlds are kind of colliding on me it's like that phasic tonic balance and I mean, athletes who do that stuff tend to get big time performance gains and just feel better. It's almost like when you balance and have capacity too. like, I'm sure with the work capacity was improved once you balance those systems out and the, um, it's cool stuff, man. Um, I know we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, my last maybe question just for a couple of minutes is just speak about, um, you know, a full circle here a little bit. Uh, I know Aldoa stretching, you tend to use that a little bit in your practice and, uh, could you explain that and how you fit that in there? Yeah, I, I do Aldoas in everything that I do. Not the principles of Aldoas, but also with no matter if I'm teaching a Bulgarian bag workshop, a kettlebell workshop, I'm working with teams, I always, always, always use Aldoas. And Aldoa, so Aldoa is a French acronym for if we translate the acronym to English, it stands for loads. And essentially, it stands for longitudinal osteoarticular decoaptation stretching. So That's amazing that's, you remember. Yeah, yeah. I've had to say it so many times that like, <laughs> it rolls off the tongue now. Um, but essentially, it's a system of, of stretching slash strengthening exercises or postures that were developed by a French osteopath named Dr. Guy Voyer. And so Dr. Guy Voyer developed the system, and he's also a medical doctor, an orthopedic surgeon. He's got a PhD in education, just super brilliant, brilliant guy. But... The Aldoa postures are highly, highly, highly specific exercises. And so there's a specific Aldoa posture for ev almost every single articulation or joint in the body. And the primary goal of an Aldoa is to increase the space in a particular joint, but to do so actively, and it utilizes the, the myofascial chains. to. So there's a specific hand position, head position, eye position, foot position, on every single posture to elicit a space opening effect are also called decoaptation at L5S1. There's a different posture for T6, T7, different posture for C4, C5. And what's so powerful about these, this technique or this tool is only takes a minute. One minute per posture is all you need. And when done consistently, the changes that you can experience are phenomenal. Like, Disc bulges, disc herniations, improved circulation, disc hydration, better joint mechanics, better body awareness, pumping. If there's a nerve that goes through an area of the spine specifically that feeds an organ and a gland, you can really, so if there's a compression there, you can really open that stuff up. And it's been one of the most, if not the most addi best additions to the holistic type of training that I do. So you still, I mean, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not eating well, if you're not balancing your energy, working in and working out, if you're not hydrated, those are the foundations of health that set up high performance. So like by no means is an Aldoa a Band-Aid or anything for any of that. You still have to manage yourself well. But when you add in the Aldoa as either its own training practice or at the end of a training session in just one to five minutes, the results are incredible. Like it is... It has extended my athletic career and my overall sense of well-being. It's just been incredible. But then again, like I'm also eating well, sleeping well, and doing those things. 
But when you use those and you use the Aldoa postures, I mean, it's just, it's really incredible. Oh, that's awesome, man. Another thing to add to the list of show notes and all the exercises and cool modalities, yeah. uh, especially <laughs> the stuff I've learned from you today. But hey, I know we're, we're out of time, but Mike, thanks so much, man. This is the workout, the talk, awesome experience. And thanks for being a guest, man. No, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to meet you. Happy we finally made this happen. All right, that does it for another uh, episode in the books of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I love getting outside the box on this show. I love being on the edge of the field. I love talking with all these uh, coaches, athletes, and uh, practitioners who are really creating something special in our field, allowing us to serve our athletes better and allowing to uh, not just serve our athletes in athletic performance, but also even just workout practice and habits in general. I think the working in stuff is awesome. Uh, and just like an FYI post-production, I have been integrating that with some athletes and the feedback has been incredible. People love it. We live in such a sympathetically overloaded space and being able to do that type of thing is really cool. So uh, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating or if you could please, <laughs> I would really just totally appreciate it if you left us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, I don't even, Podbean, I, I don't even know all these, but uh, a rating or review would be awesome. I would totally appreciate that. Our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, they rock. They're awesome. They've been with us since virtually day one. And so uh, support them. I know people ask me about timing systems. I say free lap timing system uh, without without a second thought. Uh, So they have that and many other awesome tools for athletic performance and data collection in their store. And um, we'll see you guys back next week uh, with another great guest. We've had some awesome ones in the lineup recently. So looking forward to bringing you more good information. Have a wonderful week, everybody.